Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my producer, Lindsay, and we are streaming live from downtown Coeur d'Alene, Idaho today, and we have Marion Moss on our phone uh, call, our video call today. She's going to talk about being a pro bono advocate for patients and physicians. She's got a lot to share. Um... I think there might be some surprises too, maybe some things that aren't surprising that we're going over, that we've been over multiple times. We've had doctors from all over the nation um, talk about transparency in healthcare, and that's basically transparency in pricing and, and um, you know, how patients need to advocate for themselves and physicians need to advocate for that. And she's going to really dive in deep. She's had a lot of um, articles published, like in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and we'll talk about that also. And as always, we are named Solutions. You know, that is in our name, Health Solutions. So we are not going to just complain about problems. Marion has some um, solutions to the problem. So we are going to discuss that. And you're listening to our midweek podcast where we stream live every Thursday at 8 to 9 a.m. And Mondays, we stream at 1 to 2 p.m. on our regular Monday podcast. You can find us on my Facebook page and the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy YouTube site. Subscribe to our YouTube site. Please, um, so you don't miss any episodes. We are we are at eighty seven episodes, I believe now, and there's a lot of little short videos in there too from each episode, so you don't have to watch the whole thing. Um, lots of good information there. So uh, we're on all the podcast forums too, so iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play. So please go to those um, forums and listen to us. Give us comments, feedback. We really do listen to it and appreciate it. So, and Marion, I'll go ahead and inter- let you introduce yourself a little bit, and then we'll get into the the deep dive of our conversation today. Hi, Marion Mass. I'm a practicing physician in the uh, Philadelphia area. I'm a pediatrician. Um, I've been practicing for over 20 years. Uh, my husband and I trained together at Duke Medical School, and then residency at Northwestern. Came back to this area. Uh, I raised my children. Um, I actually to tell you the truth. I moonlit uh, working nights as a hospitalist and raising them by day, um, which was a wonderful experience. I became enmeshed in my community. Uh, and then when my kids got old enough, my parents got sick and we had many foibles. And it was I was already on to the fact that healthcare was breaking. And I felt like physicians and their patients had no voice in how the healthcare system was moving forward and it wasn't moving forward in a positive way. And uh, I was already involved in like looking at what the problems were and trying to figure it out when I had an awful episode uh, with my mother who was hospitalized. If you looked up Marion Mass, Kevin, and you can read about it, but functionally what happened was that my mother was humiliated by this large accoladed hospital system. And, you know, despite my efforts, I'm not a I'm not anyone that takes anything lying down. I think most of us especially are not for our mothers and our children. And I just couldn't believe what happened to my mother. And when I tried to remedy the problem, I found out that the government institutions that were inspecting the hospitals were functionally useless. And um, it, it was, it just was this very disempowering situation. And we handled it as best we could, but the, the recurring thought for me was, I had knowledge of being an insider in the healthcare system. I have enough moxie to be able to speak for my mother. My mother was in a good hospital with good resources, you know, with excellent coverage. 
and still this happened. What the heck happens in you know a setting where you don't have someone who's a knowledgeable healthcare advocate? There's not good resources. It's just heartbreaking, and I, it just must happen again and again all over America. The quality is declining, and yet almost all Americans will tell you we're we're paying more. We're at $3.2 trillion a year that we're spending on healthcare. It's a fifth of our economy. It's growing. We pay more than other countries. We're getting less and less. What's wrong? So I started writing. I started doing like, I guess my own you know, research and um, it's, it, it's some work. You know, I've written for major newspapers that you mentioned the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Hill. I've written once for the Wall Street um, and I actually joined the editorial board as a volunteer in my own Bucks County here in Pennsylvania, uh, and I've written many, many articles through them as well. I don't get paid for any of this work. Um, I don't get paid by any large corporation other than you know my employer, and I don't speak for them in these matters. Um, I only work part time for money, and the rest of it's just pro bono advocacy. And I'm not, I'm not advocating for physicians to ever to get paid more or to be in utter control of everything. I'm, I'm advocating that we get to the bottom of why we're paying so much and allow first patients and then the physicians to have a voice in the evolution of the um, American healthcare landscape. And I say landscape because I don't believe we should have a single system. We should have a landscape of choices because healthcare is just so very personal and everyone's going to need something different. Sorry for the long introduction. No, I love it. Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate it. I, I can tell, obviously, you have a passion for this subject, and that's why um, you're so good at it. Um, so tell us a little bit about what do patients need in healthcare? Well, you know, really, the patient should tell us, but as it seems to me, patients need to harness their own prevention. I mean, we all need to have good, healthy habits that keeps us healthy. And, you know, when we get to a certain age or stage, which comes earlier for some than others, you know, we need to have the guidance of physicians, bedside nurses to help with that. Like there are primary resource for healthy habits. Those are the people who have been the standard of care for decades as trained in what should constitute good health um, to maintain. You know, then of course, if, if we have disease states, whether they be acute or chronic, we still need those physicians and those bedside nurses. Uh, we need medications when um, you know issues come up. And I'm, I'm not a shill for pharma by any means, right? But um, we do have to say that, like you know, medications are lifesavers at some point. You know, you get sicker than that, and you're going to need hospitalization. And at all steps of of this pathway, you're going to need physicians and bedside nurses to be able to lead and to guide you through that. Uh, if things get very pricey, you of course need insurance that you are not going to get decimated by pricey healthcare. Uh, and then you're going to need a set of administrators that are sort of gluing all these things together. But when you think about all of that, we should be starting with the patients and what they need. And if you think about all of the resources that are needed, it kind of moves patient, physician, bedside nurse, medication, hospital, administration and then insurance, but instead what's controlling it, the insurance is controlling it, or I should say the third party payer, because right. in many cases, um, it's the government that is has become the third party payer. And yeah. the insurance and that government are tied together. 
you know, here's a, a little fact to the insurers make 60% of their revenue off the Medicare and Medicaid space. Yeah. So see, I don't think a lot of people realize that, that. Yeah. So um, they're, they're, they're set yeah. to win whether the government controls or whether the private market controls. They're going to control no matter what you do. What you need to do is break that control. And we're in a horrible situation because of like the consolidation and the, the mergers that they've made um, vertically. But anyway, that's the next part to get into, I believe. So this is a perfect segue too to kind of promote my book a little bit. I wrote a book and it's like you're preaching to the choir about my – you could write the book. Um, when you look at the history of it, you know, my book's called Sick and How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. And – you know, when you look at the history of the insurance market, really health insurance didn't start until the government started paying for healthcare in the first place. And that's when healthcare started getting expensive, partly because there wasn't as much transparency because, you know, people didn't have to worry about what they build because of, you know, somebody else is paying the bill. So go ahead, Marion, and you know, piggyback off that and tell us um, where you were going with that, with the uh, 60% of insurances, 60% of Medicare is paid for by insurance. How'd that go? Oh, yeah. So actually, you can, you can find this. I think it's on a CNBC article that I had seen. But if you break down uh, the insurance company revenues, 60% of the revenues come from the work that they do with the government and the Medicare and the Medicaid space. I mean, they're gained to win no matter what you do. So while what happens is that I think these giant corporations that have become even more consolidated over time, they're taking a look and figuring, they're, they're acting just like they should act, right? Everyone acts like we expect them to act in the system. Those big corporations, which are not really insurance anymore, they're third-party payers, those corporations are looking to figure how can they make more money. So if they go through the government and convince the government they're the best the best way to control costs and the government wants to listen because the government, unfortunately, you know, they have elections to run and, you know, we, we develop our blue warlords and our red warlords and we all think that those warlords are going to speak for us, but whispering in their ear in the healthcare space are all these gigantic corporations, the same people that we named, you know, the, the insurance companies, their associated pharmacy benefit managers now who control the, um, the big pharma, big pharma itself, yep. the hospital associations, um, the hospitals themselves, the purchasing organizations who control the whole hospital supply line, which is 40% of their overhead, all of those entities. And in some cases, some physician groups are all whispering in the ear and the politicians are listening to the wrong things. Number one, because it, they probably make it sound good. Number two, they've had so much money, they have access so they can pay for a whole cadre of people, even if they're not paying for you know, campaign donations. They can pay for people to go make it all sound good. And then no one's listening to the patient really and what the patient needs. And the patient can tell because it all keeps on getting more and more costly. But the politicians then on the left and the right go out and they have their little slogans, repeal, 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 <laughs> Medicare for all, Medicare for all, Medicare for all. But right. either, either of those things, you know, it, it, it's not leading to why is the system so costly in the first place? And it's because all of those people that have gotten in the way that I just mentioned that are between you know, the patient and the physician. And until you get a group of physicians that are rowing in the same direction and saying the same thing, 
and in a way agitating the patients to speak for themselves, then we're just going to get more of the same. So I, I started a physician advocacy group with a cardiologist, Dr. Wes Fisher from Chicago. And then, you know, I've been writing and the, I think the best thing that I've written, it's on the free, the number two, and then care website, free number two and care. Um, it's our position paper on how to reduce cost and waste in U.S. healthcare. And we refused to take a Medicare for all or a repeal stance. Instead, we tried to find things that we thought were patient centric and would allow physicians to have more of, of a voice, not more mm-hmm. money, but more of a voice in how we take care of our patients. So and so I, tell us, yeah, so tell us a little bit about that, um, that article that you wrote. Yeah, it's, it's actually a position paper. Okay. So um, I, I got together with some other physician leaders from other groups besides outside of the practicing physicians of America and said, hey, guys, look, if we start talking about um, the need for transparency, uh, the need to reduce pharmaceutical prices and make sure that there's adequate supply of quality medications, if we start talking about innovative models of healthcare, if we start talking about innovative models of how physicians can and nurses can help with charitable healthcare um, and start talking about how we reduce the physician shortage because there's a looming physician shortage. It's actually more of a shortage of time with physicians. But if we start taking all of those things, which are things that are very patient centric and that are aisle crossers, maybe instead of having the same thing happen, follow the blue warlords, follow the red warlords, we'll get to a place where Patients rise up and say, hey, these are good ideas. And then what happened is, is we did a, um, an event at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. We invited lawmakers from across the aisle. I did get buy-in from a wonderful physician lawmaker. Uh, he's, uh, he, he's the congressman for Kansas One, Dr. Roger Marshall. He's now running for U.S. Senate. And um, I'm happy to give him a plug because he has worked tirelessly across the aisle on uh, some of these issues and many more. Um, and he's a realist in trying to figure out what can we get done first. But he helped us uh, access locations so that we could hold a nonpartisan meeting of physicians that came from all over the country, from multiple specialties and that came from across the aisle. We put on a symposium. Um, and uh, then what happened was these groups joined together. We're now at 30 uh, physician and patient advocacy groups that agree with the tenants in that position paper. And it's 8 million citizens and 70,000 of them are physicians. So we've got some buy-in for these ideas, which are patient-centric. And truthfully, I think what will happen or what, what has happened is, is that everyone's kind of like swarming because these ideas are really a pushback on all of the corporations that I've mentioned. So the corporations, they don't like all of these ideas. The physicians like them, the patients like them, but the corporations don't like them. And um, maybe maybe that should be telling America something. That right, exactly. So, so and I get nothing from this other than I lost hours and hours of time. And you know, yeah. So. Um, well, and thank you for being that advocate because ah. we definitely need somebody to do it. And I'm glad that physicians like yourself are stepping up. Can I think a lot of you are just fed up, and you know, I'm. It's going to take a grassroots movement from patients and physicians like yourself to fix this problem for sure. It's not going to come from the top down. It's going to come from the bottom up, I believe. So when we speak of tra- when you speak of transparency, you're speaking of transparency in pricing. And I think, you know, there's some 
ridiculous stories that we hear. And I was chatting with you um, a few weeks ago. You were talking about, you know, one of the reasons we need transparency in pricing is because sometimes things like a strep test are charged $25,000 or an ultrasound $59,000. Can you expand on that a little bit? You went right to my tweet, didn't you? Mary Mass MD on Twitter, my my pinned tweet, um, you know, is, is talking about how there's an appalling cost to not knowing the cost. You know, think about, and, and I don't mean, I'm not going to go into slamming the ACA to be slamming the Democrats, okay? The idea, and if you read a book called America's Bitter Pill by Stephen Brill, who's a, who's a liberal, who wrote this book to expose how the ACA was passed. And it's actually more of a study in understanding how the special interests get in there. Just like I said, whispering in the ear and telling you how you should do it. There was a juncture when, when people were looking to reform the healthcare system. You know, when Obama was promising that, he didn't have a plan in his campaign. He didn't have a big plan. He just said he was going to work on making healthcare more affordable. We should all realize it hasn't happened, but it didn't happen under the Republicans before him either, you know? So it was broken before Obama, and it's going to remain broken until we unite across the aisle and realize that the calculated decision of the ACA was to make the ACA about coverage. Think about that word, coverage. We're going to cover everything. But when you're covering things by a third-party payer, whether it be private insurance or the government, it allows a lot of coverage of the costs because no one's paying attention. So, you know, those two things that, that are mentioned in my tweet, this, you know, $25,000 test for strep throat, and you can go to the tweet and, and read the whole article and $59,000 ultrasound. A lot of coverage that happens is never questioned because the patient like doesn't see where right. the cost is going. You know, when you pull up the article within that, there was a, like a scenario where I had been starting to talk to uh, people on my editorial board in the newspaper about the idea behind coverage and how it was helping all of these special interests. And, you know, he brought up, you know, I have Medicare and, and I asked at the pharmacy what Medicare was paying for this medication that should have been very cheap. And he was like appalled to find out that it was thousands of dollars that was like going, you know, the taxpayers paying it. But because he wasn't getting dinged, and most Americans aren't right. getting dinged when things are covered, they don't think about what's the real cost to everyone. And eventually, eventually, we all pay, whether it's by taxes, whether it's by you know paying more to our Medicare Advantage, paying more right. to our premiums, paying more to our deductibles. We're all paying into this great big black hole that is making all of those special interests who figured it all out. And we're only too happy to have Obamacare passed because the model was coverage. Now, it, it's important that people have the, the peace of mind that if they get really sick or if they have a catastrophic event, that they, that they do have that coverage so they don't become bankrupt. But if you're uncovering the costs, <clears throat> decreasing the waste, cutting all the administrative glut that's in there, exposing where that money is going, then you're going to be able to have everyone pay less for all of those premiums or paying directly or however they choose to pay. 
you're going after cost instead of coverage. But when you start to try to dissect the costs, it's really hard because so many of them are hidden. And you know, the, one of the first things you run into is that these players are working together, just like they did when the ACA got passed and just like they did before that. These big corporations are working together to keep these costs deliberately hidden. And when the costs remain hidden, these guys profit. And then everyone pays more. Until we start really hitting the cost, you're not going to have a sustainable system. Yeah, I mean, explain too, um, didn't the Trump administration just pass something about hospitals have to start posting their prices or be transparent in pricing and the hospitals are actually suing um, to get that law taken away. Is that correct? <laughs> well, of course. I mean, like, you know, the large hospital systems and they've only become more and more consolidated over time as well. But, you know, these large hospital systems are really pushing back because it's, if you look at what they collect from insurance, you know, the bigger the hospital system, the more push and the more sway they have over the insurance companies, the two of them are working together to try to prevent this transparency. So I believe it was June of 2019, it was in an executive order uh, that the, the president, um, functionally what he did was to make it almost so that for healthcare, you would have an EOB before you received care, if that makes sense. You know what, like an explanation of benefits yeah, is? Right. In comes your explanation of benefits and it says, um, you got you got this care and it should have cost this much, but we talked it into being your portion of the care for being X much, but then the insurance company probably still paid some to a hospital. This would be tantamount to having the EOB come and saying, oh, you know, the hospital charged this much to the insurance company and was able to get, you know, X amount of dollars. And then the patient could see how much the hospital was making from the insurance company. So it's, it's kind of a pushback on the insurance company and the hospital. And it's the most simple thing there is, because if you, why would we not want to go right. to two of the biggest players and cost drivers in the healthcare landscape and to figure out how much money they're making? We don't even know. We can't see it. We should be able to see right. it. Right. And and I think I think it just right. I think it says a lot when the hospital groups are are pushing back and they don't want to be transparent. It just says a lot. It's like, what are they hiding? You know, now I'm sure they've got a totally different argument, but in my opinion, I think it is that simple. You said it should be that simple, and it should. It's no different than any other industry. When you buy a car, before you buy a car. There's a list of what is on that car, and you know exactly what you're going to pay. When you check into a hotel, they tell you what you're going to pay. And if there's any extra charges, they'll tell you what that is when you check out. Um, you know, at a hospital, you just it's kind of a surprise. You get surprise bills, you know, three or four months later, and you have no idea what the price is going to be. That has to stop. That's what's driving up, you know, the the cost of healthcare for sure. Absolutely, and you know, in addition, there's. There's hidden players inside the system as well that are tied to the insurers. So I have done a lot of writing on the pharmacy benefit managers and their hospital cousins, the group purchasing organizations. 
So, and it's like, it's absolutely fascinating. You know, I was, I was already starting to look at uncovering costs and things of that nature when um, I was introduced to um, two gentlemen, uh, Bob Campbell and Phil Zweig, who were uh, looking at exposing the secret and hidden kickbacks of these two industries, group purchasing organizations and pharmacy benefit managers. It's, it's actually really difficult to understand. Um, you could look up in that, uh, the Bucks County Courier Times, uh, kickbacks cost and kill patients with pre-existing conditions. It's probably a good starter article. But the, the group purchasing organizations are the industry that controls the hospital supply chain, not just medications, not just solutions and devices, but also, you know, our masks or gowns or gloves, you know, our bedpans or bed sheets. Everything that's in a hospital that's tangible is, you know, controlled by the group purchasing organizations. And they've consolidated into four large um, companies, and they control 90% of the whole hospital and nursing home supply chain. And in wow. some hospitals, that's 40% of their overhead. That's a lot of power, right? Yeah. So now keep those in your mind. We're purchasing organizations, controlling the hospital supply chain, which, of course, we realized in COVID is obviously broken, right? So then, yeah, right. you know, the cousins on the pharma outpatient pharmaceutical side are the pharmacy benefit managers. And most Americans are familiar with pharmacy benefit managers. The three biggest are CVS, Optum, and Express Scripts. So anyone who's gotten a prescription has probably seen one of those names out there. These three companies control 85% of the outpatient pharmaceuticals. And they do it because they're the ones that are making up the formularies. The formularies are the list of medications that are paid for by the uh, insurance companies. So here's like the, the gist of the matter that I've written about these pharmacy benefit managers and these group purchasing organizations have the right to receive legalized kickbacks from the manufacturers. So if you're a manufacturer, it gives you a perverse incentive to pay off the pharmacy benefit manager so that your drug ends up at the top of the list. And if you look up the article that I just mentioned, you know, there's three companies that are making insulin and they're on the insulin formularies that are making the main, um, the main formulation of insulin. And it's estimated that roughly three quarters of the cost of insulin is going to those kickbacks. So the kickback is the pharmaceutical company can pay off the pharmacy benefit manager. They can end up with their drug at the top of the formulary, their brand name drug, or even their generic version of a drug. And then that is the only thing that is covered by the insurance company. And then you, when you have the right to be the only thing at the top of the formulary, are you going to keep your cost high or low? It's going to be a high cost. Right. And then the pharmacy benefit managers, because the kickback is a percentage of the cost of the drug, they're perversely incentivized to keep the, the higher priced drug up at the top. And then everyone keeps on paying more and more and more. The pharmacy benefit managers make more and more of the money. The group purchasing organizations are doing the same thing in hospitals. And then we end up with shortages of medications like, you know, EpiPens on the, on the outpatient side and uh, like injectable steroids that are now being used for treating COVID on the inpatient side. You know, there's more than 150 shortages of medications in hospitals across America. And in part, you know, the root cause of this is these legalized kickbacks. You start writing about that and then they really come after you. 
it's like really shocking that these like pharmacy and hospital middlemen, like they're functionally controlling big pharma. And then and, big pharma has become bigger because of it, because they're monopolized. Right. For sure. And the most shocking thing about it is that it's legal. I mean, you know, this is mafia and mob-like tactics and it's legal. It's, it's unreal. Yeah. And, and maybe some of the reason why is because there's big lobbying groups in healthcare. Um, can you tell us about kind of the numbers of lobbying groups and the percentages that are of the big lobby groups that are in, that are in healthcare? Sure. I love hanging out on uh, open secrets. So if you look at top spenders on open secrets and there's like four in the top nine are tied to healthcare, you know, insurance, the hospital associations, pharma, and the American Medical Association. Um, and then all of those groups have interrelations among themselves. I've talked about insurance and hospitals kind of negotiating together in a way that we can't see with non-transparent prices. You know, they're working together. Um, one thing I didn't mention in going back to the uh, pharmacy benefit managers is they've vertically integrated with the insurance companies which is a conflict of interest in and of itself, because that means the insurance company is functionally paying themselves when they're paying the pharmacy benefit managers. But so the pharmacy benefit managers and the insurance companies, they're there on that top list of spending together because they're functionally tied together. You know, in some ways they're working with the large pharmaceutical companies with these kickbacks. And that's all hidden by the way, because no one can actually see the, uh, the kickback contracts which everyone should be able to, but they wow. can't. so like, this is another necessary element for transparency, you know, the American medical association and, you know, there's wonderful members with inside the American medical association, but most Americans think the AMA speaks for physicians. The AMA used to have 85% of practicing physicians as members and it's sunk and sunk and sunk. It's down to somewhere below 15%. We believe, I don't think they've published the numbers since roughly 2011. You know, but the AMA is tied to the insurance company because they own the royalties to the CPT coding system. It's the coding system that uh, enables us to get paid for our procedures. And when you have that conflict of interest, it kind of like, in a way, tarnishes your reputation to be able to speak for your profession and your patients when you're tied to uh, the insurance companies. So all of those like big groups are sort of tied together. I, I kind of wonder how much they talk to each other. I can't say because I'm <laughs> not in the room. Well, and all of those big groups that you mentioned, they want to keep it complicated, including the AMA. I mean, CPT codes and ICD-9 codes complicates the system. I mean, for sure. What? How many? How thick is the book on the ICD-10 codes or whatever and some of the ridiculous codes there are? The AMA basically is an accessory to the crime when they are supporting that because ICD-9 codes and CPT codes do not take care of patients. Do you have any comment on that? Yeah, the codes don't take care of patients. The comment that I'll make is ICD is actually owned by the World Health Organization. Okay, it's that's good to know. Thank you for clarifying that. So like, you know, just try to be fair and give the facts here, but it's interesting. Yep. Because I don't think the World Health Organization makes any royalties off of the ICD codes, but the AMA does make the royalties off of the CPT codes. And interestingly enough, um, the codes themselves are published by one of the arms of the pharmacy benefit managers. The pharmacy benefit manager, Optum, their subsidiary, Optum 360, is publishing the codes. So there must be some kind of tie in there between the AMA and the, the PBMs. I, I, I can't figure out what it is, you know, but 
it's it, but so much of it is hidden. I just wish people would say, you know, here's my conflict of interest and come out with it. But yeah. and I, like I said, I do think that there's you know good people within the AMA, and it's like the big recognizable force in healthcare that most patients recognize. But you know, I think the idea behind something like free to care is is all right. You know, we believe in healthy competition, and it's time that the AMA had some competition and advocacy. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there may be places that we can align and work together if we find agreement. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of um, competition and you know ways to fix the system, what are the five things? You, you specifically have talked about the five things needed to reduce cost in the American healthcare system. What is that? Well, so we had five platforms within the free to care paper and the platforms were um, increasing transparency. Uh, they were reducing drug costs and increasing um, the uh, availability of drugs, you know, getting rid of the shortages by getting rid of legalized kickbacks. So uh, number one, number two, Number three, um, providing better models of and more transparent models of healthcare delivery and payment. So uh, I'll speak for it. We, you know, we talked about transparency and we talked about PBMs. There's a model of healthcare called direct primary care. And most people hear about direct primary care. They think of it as what they know as a concierge care where mm-hmm. you're paying an exorbitant amount of fee to a physician to take care of you and only rich people can afford this. Direct primary care is like primary care for the, the non-wealthy. Um, you pay a membership model, which is often less than your cable bill, and you have access to a physician who has discovered, I'm just not even dealing with the insurance company model. I'm opening my own office, and we're getting rid of coverage, and I will see this patient um, as many visits as they need, same-day care. Uh, they, The DPC doctors work with laboratory systems. They work with... Uh, imaging systems. Uh, They can often dispense medications from their own offices and they're saving their patients thousands of dollars in these venues. So the patient, you know, they're encouraged to have a catastrophic level of care just in case something bad happens. But this is like the ultimate model of transparency. So the patient is discovering they get access to care, they get good preventative care, they get good sick care, they get someone, as I said, guiding them if they become hospitalized. Um, These DPC doctors, you know, we've talked about throughout this pandemic, the need for um, telehealth. They've been doing it for years. Right, right. Nothing new for them. No, totally nothing new for them. So they've been saving their patients thousands of dollars. I know one doctor in Pennsylvania, it's something like anywhere between $500 and $1,200 a month, she saved one guy who was on Medicare from the cost of his medications because she's cutting out the pharmacy benefit managers. She's able to dispense medications and she's not making much money off of them. So what you end up with in a very transparent model like this is a happy doctor, happy patients, much less money paid. So we talk about cutting out the power of the pharmacy benefit managers, which will drop the drug prices. We talk about transparency. Here's the model. So number one, transparency. Number one, those middlemen and how can we reduce their power and um, make drugs more affordable. Number three, supporting those innovative models, good innovative models. So making sure that the special interests don't get to the government and say, don't let them do this, allowing people to have that as a choice. You know, because healthcare, it's very personal. People should have the choice 
of those wonderful models that are very transparent and an affordable way to pay for them through their own money, through healthcare savings accounts, et cetera. Um, innovative models of charity would be the fourth arm. There was a great bill uh, introduced by a group called Association of Mature American Citizens that would allow physicians to be able to see patients um, for free, but then write that off in their taxes. It, it was limited to 20 patients. You could see patients that were either uninsured or patients that were in the Medicaid space, and you're saving Medicaid money. And you're allowing these patients to have access to a physician, you know, especially for the younger physicians, this would be wonderful. I mean, I don't know if America's aware of this, but healthcare education, just like all parts of education, it has skyrocketed. You know, when Steve and I started Duke Med in 1990, our tuition was $13,000 a year. I'm not suffering like these poor young physicians are, which is another reason that I do this because I sort of feel like I have an opportunity here. I'm not looking to be able to write off of my taxes myself for this, but if younger physicians were able to do that, it would really help them knock back the $250,000 payments they have on their loans. Right. Physicians are, you know, earning 7.3% on the health care dollar, 7.3 cents on the health care dollar. And they have these like pretty much mortgages from all the years that they were in school with. And during residency, they have to like pay the, um, you know, the excess, the interest that accrues on their loans. So they end up with like a gigantic loan package when they're done. So allowing physicians to almost directly help patients that need access, you know, that would be a real wonderful boon for patients. And then the last thing was, um, reducing the physician shortage. So, you know, it's estimated over 100,000 physicians will be in shortage by the year 2020. I wish I had the number at the top of my head. It's somewhere in that paper. But it's also the um, shortage of time with the physician. And we have that shortage of time with the physician because we have such a glut of paperwork now. And we have a glut of paperwork because we allow all of these industries to keep on adding more and more for us to do. Right which allows us less and less time with the patients. And the government hasn't helped with that either. So well, and, and I had a DPC doctor on our podcast and it's not so much a shortage of physicians. He was saying it's a inefficient system because um, DPC physicians see their patients unlimited times or, you know, they have that opportunity yet most DPC physicians can get their patients in the same day. So, is it because it's an efficient system? The DPC system is. Um, so is it really a shortage or is it that we have a very inefficient system? you have any comments on that? I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. You no. Know, and then if you start looking at, there's, I call it the Drexit, the doctor exit. I mean, there's physicians that are either doing, and, I, and I'm guilty of this myself. I'm part-time. Yeah. Sorry about my phone buzzing. I'll move it off to the side. Okay. Um, <laughs> I work part-time and out of choice, I, I'm able to because I don't have those huge loans because I'm so old. You see the gray hairs if I'm still <laughs> You look great. <laughs> well, thank you. It's okay. It's not all about it. That's not what it's about. But regardless, um, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. So, yes. So, a lot of physicians. Inefficient system. Sure. Yeah. Physicians. Oh, have and physicians back. leaving. Exiting. Yeah, sure. Because at some point they realize that they're like, they're getting cut and cut and cut. They're getting burned out. Lots of them run off into industry. 
yeah. or they're retiring early. And yeah. the last thing we want to do is allow any more um, regulation or any more legislation that decreases physician, the, the number of physicians we have more. We need to make our profession more sustainable rather than less. You know, as I said from the beginning, we're the tried and true gold standard method for who speaks for our patients in a healthcare landscape. But we don't have a sustainable system because of those big loans, because of this gigantic paperwork, because physicians are leaving to go to industry that becomes more and more profitable. And I guess I can't even blame those physicians. I mean, they have families too. They're getting burned out from all this paperwork. And and it's it's also, I think the worst thing that physicians feel is that you do all this training and then you end up in a setting where you're looking your patient in the eye and realizing that you failed them because you can't get them what they need, which is exactly what I felt. Remember I started the story with my mom? It's exactly yeah. what I felt with my mom. I'm the only girl of five, you know, so it was um, a really like horrible feeling like <laughs> Duke Med, Northwestern, and my mom, I can't prevent her from being humiliated. Really? Wow, something's yeah. really wrong here. And I think, you know, people just become overwhelmed. People will say that, okay, the industry is just too powerful to push back against. But, you know, there's 900,000 physicians in the United States. If we got to just 10% of us and aligned with our patients, right. which is the idea behind free to care, forget about lobbying with money. We should be lobbying with information, which is really what free to care is all about. Look, there's a better way here. You know, for a long time, physicians went and we complained. But we said, you know, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, I'm mad about X, Y, and Z. But we didn't come and offer solutions, which is what that paper attempted to do. And it attempted to offer solutions that would cross the aisle. Um, it was a, it's a pushback on corporate care, on the corporate control, and it's uh, a way to empower both patients and physicians to end up with a healthcare landscape that's sustainable, that is cost-effective, that is really affordable. And I love it. I love it. And, you know, just to comment on physicians exiting, I think it's, you know, I mean, there's a lot of them that we don't hear about, but I will say DPC has saved a lot of them because there's a lot of physicians that if they didn't have DPC to go into, they would just not be physicians anymore. And that would be a tragedy because we, we need good doctors. And I think one thing that's nice about the DPC movement, and I will let you comment on this, is that, you know, Direct primary care, it's primary care, but what's happened is that has also driven more of a specialty um, direct care also. Can you, because there's a lot of specialists now. We had a urologist on our show last week that is a, uh, you know, he's going into, going to um, be a direct care urologist and not do bill any insurance. So, and I know orthopedic surgeons have done that. There's other specialists that are going that route. Can you comment on, on specialists going into direct care? Sure. I mean, like essentially what they're, they're doing is they're opening up transparent models of their own, you know, um, like you could look at like the Oklahoma surgery center is the, yep, the I love example. it. And then there's other surgery centers around the country that have opened up, but they offer transparent uh, pricing and healthcare. Um, I'll get my numbers wrong. I'll tell you what I remember the numbers as. But you know, the Oklahoma Surgery Center, if if you need a particular surgery that you know that's elective, you know, you can check their prices over the prices that you'll pay 
in um, in another setting. So there was a patient, I believe, that needed a circumcision revision. And I believe they were going to, they had a gigantic deductible. Um, and I think they were going to have to pay something like, I don't know, $9,000. And their deductible was might have been met by that. But they were going to have to pay $9,000 using their insurance. I think the... Uh, the fee at the Oklahoma Surgery Center was something like $1,200. So, yeah. And I love the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. I love Dr. Keith Smith. And we talk about him all the time on this podcast. And in general, um, whether it be a hip surgery, a knee surgery, or um, a urological procedure, um, it's usually 10 to 1. Local public hospital, um, $10,000. Surgery Center of Oklahoma, $1,000. And it's almost unbelievable. And I believe, honestly, you know, the hospitals might argue different that it's not quality. I think it's better quality and it's better service. Um, And actually, like, you know, it also brings to mind there's, um, you know, one of the toxic things about another toxic thing about the Affordable Care Act was the the, uh, moratorium on physicians owning hospitals. I mean, it's really kind of unbelievable that you would prevent any one group from owning anything in America. I mean, imagine if, if right. you know, like uh, hairdressers couldn't own salons, you know, it had to <laughs> well, it's really just kind of like bizarre, isn't it? That is. I never even thought about that. That is. It's, it's one of the way that, you know, and I'm not saying that like others shouldn't be allowed to own hospitals, but when you start looking at the numbers, physician owned hospitals usually offer better patient satisfaction, um, fewer complications, lower prices overall. Uh, instead of like the corporate model that we have, it's kind of another uh, scenario of the public. I think they believe that physicians and hospitals are one, but there's been kind of a growing gap. It's not every hospital system. There's some great hospital systems, but it's almost like the battle of suits versus scrubs. Right, right. A little uh, series of that on the Practicing Physicians of America blog site. Um, But the hospitals are run by the suits now. It's a corporation yep. and it becomes a problem. Uh, as far as the specialists, another another potential problem that could arise as we look to fix problems in healthcare. I, can we diverge and talk about surprise billing for a moment? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, we've talked about that before yeah. on the show. Please. Yeah, I just I want to try to like simplify, you know, the surprise billing problem. Um, of course, surprise billing itself, you know, so the scenario is is that a patient has an unexpected emergency, you know, something they can't shop for. They show up at a hospital that's in network for them. Uh, they get care. Let's just say they show up for an appendectomy in the middle of the night. They go in, they first see the ER doctor who diagnoses them. Uh, the ER doctor might diagnose them likely from a CAT scan. The radiologist reads the CAT scan. They call in the anesthesiologist. They call in the surgeon. Um, so now you have an ER doctor, uh, a uh, radiologist, a general surgeon and anesthesiologist that have all taken care of you at two in the morning somewhere, right? And they were happy to do that. And you know, we we are on staff, we're on call. That's our duty. We're not. We, we would never say we're shirking our primary duty to take care of the patient, would we? No. So now along comes uh, the bill, and what you discover is that any or all of those four may not be in your network. Now. That means they can bill you and the insurance companies are painting the scenario as though it's all the physician's fault that you are getting these, they call them surprise bills. 
really the first surprise is that the insurance companies have made some of their network rules so draconian that physicians can't stay in practice if they stay within the network. And then once the physicians are out of network, they can't come in at two in the morning and continue to do that and pay the bills in their own practice and then see their patients the next day for nothing. So they send a bill. The insurance companies blame the physicians on the bill. But you know why didn't the insurance companies pay a reasonable fee in the first place for these physicians that were out of network? Because they want to control us. Right. So if you sure. about the primary duty of the physician is to take care of the patient, which we've done, the primary duty of the insurance company isn't to be the third party payer. It's, as we said at the very beginning, what do patients need? The insurance companies really should be existing to pay for unforeseen circumstances. <laughs> the real surprise in the surprise bill is they're abrogating the primary duty. And so now they are looking to control the surprise billing setting by, you know, there's two fixes for surprise billing that are running through Congress right now. The one is called independent dispute resolution that puts insurance companies and physicians on a setting when we disagree with the amount the insurance company should pay, we get to have a resolution. We're not asking, you know, physicians are not saying we want to surprise bill the patients. We're simply saying the insurance company should pay us a reasonable fee and we should be on equal ground. The insurance companies want to have something called benchmarking by which they can continually drive down the cost of what they pay and control everything. Now, you know, they paint it as though greedy doctors are trying to profit here and have their payments go up and up. We're not doing that. In New York and Texas, there's been that independent dispute resolution um, setting has passed and physicians are actually taking a cut. It's okay with us. We, want, we don't want the patients to get the surprise bills. None of us do, but we simply don't want the insurance companies to gain more control. Now, think about the unforeseen circumstances that could happen, and this is where those specialists come in. So I mentioned all those people who were in the hospital in the middle of the night taking care of the patients, and we talked about hospital burnout. If the insurance company gets full control and they are able to drive down what the physician is collecting in payments from the insurance company, you know, not from the patient, if they're able to drive that down past 7.3 cents on the healthcare dollar, what are doctors that are close to retirement going to do? Oh, yeah, right. Like, I mean, why Why on earth after you've been on, like, let's just take your, your doctor who's like 55, 58, 59, something like that, especially the specialists that have a whole panel of patients to see the next day. They're on call for a hospital. They get called in at two in the morning, which, you know, when you're on call for the hospital, that's what you will do. You will go take care of the patient. You won't shirk your duty. But if the insurance company is driving down your payment in that setting. You're still taking all the risk of the liability. You're taking care of the patient. And now the insurance company is driven down your payment more and more and more. Specialists are going to walk away from hospital call. And that's a horrible situation for Americans. You know, after, after 20 years of call to get, you know, 30%, 40% cut on what you're getting paid for your two in the morning operation because the insurance company wanted to control and make more does that sound right to patients yeah right no so i mean it's it's a hard scenario to to discuss and argue but you want your physicians to be there 24 7 for you the insurance companies should be should be covering 
the emergency scenarios and the fact that they want to get rid of that responsibility, it's absolutely obscene. But yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're going to wind this podcast up. I want a final question. I'm going to ask you first, and I'll ask our listeners and viewers as we do at the end of every show. What is the most urgent issue facing the American healthcare system today, Dr. Moss? Oh, I'll give you a, a two-paragraph answer. Well, <laughs> it's the cost. And then because I don't want to just say, here's the problem and just put the blame on, it's the cost. And what drives that cost is a lack of transparency administrative glut over regulation and the ongoing consolidation. And it's time for us to expose and confront the profiteering special interests behind those four cost drivers. And so when you talk about transparency, transparency in all those things. Absolutely. We need to to uh, uncover, uh, open up the books. We need to cut the glut and we need to make the Americans aware why they're paying more and getting less so that we can together build a sustainable system. Awesome. I love it. So now I'm going to ask you, the viewers and listeners, thank you for listening, first of all. And what do you feel is the most urgent issue facing the American healthcare system today? Put it in the Facebook comments, uh, message us, any way you can contact us. Um, please let us know because we want to answer these questions for you. And that's why we that's why we do this show. We want to educate and empower individuals that they are in charge of their own health care. And not just their own health, but also their own health care within regards to pricing. So we feel that you guys should have a choice. And we are educating you to um, let you know you do have choice and where, where, what options you can decide. So Dr. Mass, I thank you for being on today. Great show. I appreciate you um, donating all your time to be advocates for, um, phys- for um, patients and physicians alike, because we definitely need that. And um, thank you for being on. And thank you listeners and viewers for listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Monday, 1 to 2 p.m. We will have Dr. Ashley Tribulet on our show. She's a naturopath, and we will be talking about um, toxic relationships and treating toxic relationships. So you don't want to miss out on that. We have not had any anything on our episodes like that yet. So um, please tune in 1 to 2 p.m. Monday. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you. <music>